0: Hello, I'm Chris Biddle and welcome to Inside AgriTurf. For this final episode of Season 1 of Inside AgriTurf, and the series will return in May, I'm delighted to welcome Peter Leach. Peter joined the UK branch of John Deere in 1971 as a service trainee, working his way up the ranks in the service support and training divisions before retiring in 2013 after 42 years with the company. His final responsibility was managing the delivery of training throughout Deere's R2 region, which comprised eight training centres, 100 staff, who were were responsible for over 26,000 dealer employees spread across 36 countries. He was president of IAGRI, the institution of agricultural engineers from 2010 to 2012, and is a keen student of the industry, today running his own consultancy. But one of the real reasons for me wanting to catch up with Peter is that he has been directly credited with providing valuable help and guidance at different stages of their careers by two of my recent podcast guests, Jeremy Gibbs of Forces Farming and Graham Thompson, who rose from a service technician with a dealership in Hampshire to being a director of John Deere in the US. So, Peter, a very warm welcome. And firstly, uh, did you have such mentors during your career? Um, how did they help? And indeed, what do you think makes a good mentor?
1: Um, well, first of all, Chris, um, thanks for inviting me. And, and also, uh, it's very kind of those two chaps, Graham and Jeremy, to mention me in their uh, podcast with you. And uh, they are amongst many that I hired while I was at Deere and helped to develop and who've gone on to higher places within the company and also outside of the company. People like David Hart at Kubota, who you also yes. um, interviewed on a podcast some time ago. Uh, and of course, there are quite a few others who've gone on and are amongst the dealer organization these days. So so yes, it, it is important. Uh, um, having mentors, of course, we all need mentors, um, and they come in many different sort of sizes and shapes. Um, mine were uh, were more like people I looked up to and respected rather than probably true mentors in the modern sense of the word and certainly they were my various bosses certainly my early ones like Newey Kingston who was the customer support service manager at John Deere back in the 70s Um, and Doug Walker who everybody knows Doug Walker who was uh, the MD of Deere for 25 years or more Mm -hmm. but also many of my work colleagues and 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 dealers as well I mean there was a A wonderful chap, many people know and will remember, called Don Macmillan.
0: Know him well, or knew him well,
1: and he was uh, he was quite a character. And and although he was a bit gruff when you first met him as a as a little junior, um, I learned a lot from him, and he he, we became great friends. And uh, people like that. But also, Uh, uh, I would say is that you you need mentors throughout your career. It's not just when you're young and developing, and at different times you need different people. Um, and later in my career, when I became president of I Agree, um, Chris Wetnall, who was the CEO at the time, was extremely useful and uh, helpful and, and basically mentored me in, in that job.
0: Mm-hmm. Good.
1: So, yeah, so, uh, yeah, mentors are absolutely critical, I think. And what I believe makes a, a good mentor is really someone someone who takes an interest in you and your career and the development of it. Uh, someone who listens and offers advice and guidance rather than telling you what to do, but just listens to all your thoughts and dreams and ideas and uh, points you in the direct direction. But probably, and certainly for me, the most important bit was to explain why and how. You mm-hmm. know, It's all very well being told, well, you want to do this or it would be good if you did that or whatever. But if you don't know why it's going to be good for you or even how to go about doing it, it's not very helpful advice, to be perfectly honest. No. Um, so, uh, so that's a, a key element of mentoring, I think, listening and guiding with advice.
0: Okay. Well, look, that's excellent. Um, can we go right back to the the beginning? Uh, did you have a, a background of any kind in
1: agriculture? Oh, very much so. Yes, my my father was a farmer, and his father was a farmer, and my wife, my mother's father was a farmer. So, I very much come from a farming background. Um, but engineering was the interesting bit as well, because my dad was a farmer, but he was also a, a very good engineer. He could fix most things. Um, and during the, the war, he'd been a, a, a flight engineer on, uh, on, in the RAF, of course, flying on Halifax and later Lancaster bombers. So, uh, he knew a lot of uh, great stories about Merlin engines and all that kind of stuff. Excellent. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I have an older brother who's who uh, is, is now the farmer? There wasn't enough for both of us to farm, and to be fair, I was never really that interested in the straight farming part of it. No, more the machinery. And he and I—we had our first car at thirteen, and I was pulling tractors apart at fourteen. So, <laughs> yes, uh, very much the background with my father's guidance. Yeah, oh, fantastic. And and so, what was your route <laughs> into deer? Oh well, that was uh, that was quite interesting as well. I. I from school, I went on to college and did agricultural engineering, you know, at, at HND level and whatever. I didn't, didn't go to university. Um, and uh, when I finished that, I, I, I really fancied working for one of the big four. And the big four in those days, of course, were Ford, Massey, um, International Harvester and David Brown. So I, I wrote to all of those guys and said, look, here's me. I'm a farmer's son and got all this education and I want to come and work for you and uh, they all very politely said oh that's very nice thank you but we don't have any vacancies so uh, oh I didn't know what to do then and then I saw an advert in Farmers Weekly for John Deere who were relatively local to where I lived and they were advertising for a a, a service trainee back in 71 this was and uh, so I went for an interview I got the job and I started in 1971 and uh, the funny thing there was, which puts the big four in perspective, uh, all of my friends were farmers, of course, or involved in farming somehow or other. And I said, oh, I've got a job. I've got, I've started my career. And they said, oh, where are you going? I said, I'm going to John Deere. And they said, John who? <laughs> so that's how uh, little-known John Deere was back then because they'd only been in the UK since... Uh, 66 5 years when i joined them
0: yeah so i mean we, we touched on the importance of mentors and when you when you joined dear um, there must have been a uh, big company a big international company there must have been some early lessons that you learned that have probably carried you through peter carried you through your career uh, can you think of any that stand out
1: uh yeah that's a, that's a great question and, and yes of course Um, I can think of many, probably four or five, Um, probably the first one. And and the one that a lot of people start with when they start a career is they really focus on the job, learning the technical expertise of whatever it might be. And of course, it's highly important to have the technical expertise and be good at whatever it is your discipline is. Um, But I soon learned and my mentors helped me to realize that being a Technical expert is, is one thing, but managing or understanding people and relationships is just as important. So that was a, a very key early lesson. Another one would be uh, communication, the ability to explain things, including the how and the why. I've already mentioned that earlier. To me, these things are important. Just being told something isn't enough. I need to know why and how. Mm, how true. Uh, people would say, you know, uh, you should do this, but not why. And I say, con- frustrating. Um, I learned also very early on that uh, the customer is our judge. Whatever we do, um, we, there is a customer at the end of it somewhere. He's the judge, and everything depends on his opinion of our product, our service, even us as people as to whether we get more business. Uh, and another thing I learned, and uh, one of my mentors definitely uh, uh, told me this or helped me with this, he said, you need to be able to apologize and don't feel ashamed of it. If you're in the wrong or your company's made a mistake, don't flannel and waffle and all the stuff you hear politicians doing. Just say, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. um, and it, it, it cuts a lot of ice, and then you can move on from that point. Yes. So I learned that one, and that's, that is a good one. I think a lot of people should realize that. Um, and part, probably the last one, and it's probably the, the main reason for our chat here today, is uh, invest your time and effort into people hiring yes. people interviewing taking the time to do it properly helping develop them and mentoring them and all that because there's two real good reasons and possibly a little selfish and one is the better you build your team around you the easier your job becomes in the end because yes. they you know they're reliant and uh, keen to get on and they'll, they'll be doing it all but also probably the most satisfaction i've ever had from my job, and I'm still getting it now, as you referred to with Graham and Jeremy, is, uh, is seeing the people you've helped and hired move on to better things. Uh, so, yes, Peter, yes. Let, let's talk tractors. Okay. Uh, that's
0: been your life for uh, all those, those years. Now, the tractor market would have looked very different back in 1971. Uh, what, what was the average horsepower of, of a tractor then?
1: Ah, this is a, yes, interesting subject and uh, quite, a, quite an interesting one in that I have, even though I've not ever been directly involved in sales, I've always had a keen interest in uh, that side of it. And I've kept a lot of data and collected data on horsepower sizes and uh, the tractor market, market shares, volume and all this sort of stuff. And written quite a few articles recently. A couple have been published in Classic Tractor magazine, mm-hmm. um, and there's one in process which you will be out in Profi in a month or two. I'm not sure which issue yet. Oh, I look forward to that. Yes, good, thank you. And uh, but to answer the direct question 1971. Without looking in my charts, would have been about sixty-five horsepower. I would think. Gosh,
0: sixty-five horsepower.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that is which is that almost. That seems a, incredible now, doesn't it? Now, uh, um, horticultural tractor almost these days. Yeah, absolutely right.
0: Now, now, actually, I was I was chairman of the Four tractor dealers association back in that era, and um, the main topic of conversation at all the dealers is uh, what was the market and what was our share. Um, of course. So um, I think uh, the UK tractor market was around about thirty-five thousand units uh, in 19, early seventies, and today, of course, it's 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 about a third of that. It's only twelve thousand. But how does that equate to the comparable horsepower, of the total
1: tractors sold then and and today? Yeah. Uh, okay. Yes. That's a. That's a very good point, and and your the sixty five horsepower we talked about then with your Ford tractors would have been a, a Ford four thousand, I guess, in those days. Something yeah, like that.
0: unfortunately, I go back even further
1: than that. But there you are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, super majors. So yeah, the the market and the horsepower. Now the the horsepower is a is a, a very interesting one. Um, back in 71 or even earlier back in 66 where I've got data the total horsepower was about two million horses which sounds a hell of a lot but that's where it was Um, and surprisingly today with that much smaller market that you talk about 12,000 tractors with an average horsepower of 170 or so which is where we are now you're still two million horsepower so the one thing that has remained very static or relatively static has been that total horsepower figure of about 2 million horses. Um, the tractor provided almost all of the motive power on a farm. Um, you know, it, it, the forage harvester was pulled by the tractor, the front end loader was attached to the tractor, and so on. So was the sprayer. But now we have telehandlers, we have self propelled sprayers, we have self propelled forage harvesters, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, although we still have 2 million horsepower worth of tractors sold every year, if you add all those additional self-propelled machines in, which weren't self-propelled back then, that's a lot more than 2 million.
0: Back in the early 70s and five years after you joined then, Peter, uh, John Deere were very much the new kids on the block in the tractor market. Um was there a difference of the technology that they brought to the, the market, that Deer Tractors brought to the market, compared with their uh, competitors uh, that provided them an edge? Uh,
1: yes, well, I, I think there was, and of course I would say that, but uh, <laughs> I think definitely there there was, and hence the the price reflected that as well. Um, and, you know, I think there there is still a technological leadership from Deer, in many fields, not everywhere, of course, but in many fields, um, you know and back then some of the early features such as power shift transmission in the 1960s you know long before anybody else came out with it and, and it worked extremely well as well um, closed center hydraulics lower link sensing um, you know and all those sort of things which came on the big tractors and 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 John Deere were definitely acknowledged in those days as the leaders in big tractors um, for many many years but apart from that there's another very key thing which i'm going to say which i guess you'd expect me to say and and that is uh the, the, one of the key differences with deer was the the level of support they provided for the products and still do um because if you if you look at the you know the amazing parts backup that they provide today you know on all machines of any age overnight anywhere those sort of those sort of things are you know are happening as we speak um the warranty that they provide and the you know the uh, of the the pip programs as we used to call them, which means the, you know, going out there and modifying machines if there's a known issue and better parts, then they would step up to the plate, spend the money, and modify the you know, the ones that had the the problems. Those sort of things. So uh, there there was a, a, a phrase which uh, I'm sure many people remember, and it is still used occasionally. One of the strap lines deer used was a was a term called. Um, reliability is our strength. Um, and people say, well, they're not that reliable. Um, you know, they break down, same as anything else. Yes. W- which is true, you know. But um, th- that term was always meant to convey a lot more than just the product and, and uptime on the product. It was the overall package, the backup, the parts supply, and the 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 reputation of the company being reliable during uh, tractors and technology
0: is evolving all the time uh, what would you say was were, or were the most significant technological advances on well d-
1: deer tractors and tractors in general at that time perhaps i, I tend to call those uh, wow moments you know hmm. um, and, and there are moments in your career and in life when something happens and you go oh wow and uh, you step back a bit and and uh, look at something for the first time. And uh, and a, a few standout examples of that would probably be the, uh, the sound guard body cab right the way back in 1972. I mean, uh, all the cab legislation was coming in, rollover protection and all the rest of it. And later on, um, noise levels, but uh, noise levels weren't even considered much in 72. But that sound guard body, that's the one with the round front and the mm-hmm. forward opening door. Um, you know it was down to 86 dBA or something it was it was extremely quiet you could open the front door and deafen yourself um, you know and, uh, and, and cabs in general on, on all tractors not just deer um, have, have just come leaps and bounds it's, it's amazing the difference since those early days so that's one thing um, the full frame tractor design of the six and seven thousand which was a revelation when it first came out um, but probably the one that, that I really did say wow and stand back from was auto steer. I mean, people have sort of talked about it. Oh, we could make this GPS stuff, steer the track. And say, well, why would you want to do that? But when you actually drive it, and, and probably more impressively, when you drive a combine with a 35-foot cutting platform, and you're heading into the last bout that's 34 feet and 11 inches wide, <laughs> you think there's no way that's going to go in there. Yeah, and uh, if you drove it manually, it wouldn't. It'd be a bit on the left, then there'd be a bit on the right, and so on. But you press that auto steer button, and, f- and it just sort of uh, gobbles it up. It's just incredible. So the first time I saw that, and I'm sure many other people have had that that same wow moment with auto steer. Mm-hmm. So yeah, lots of uh, lots of wow moments.
0: Uh, I'm sure, and, and just going back to cab, uh, having been brought up in the days when uh, we used to retrofit cabs from a company I think called Alexander Duncan from Scotland. Uh, indeed, uh, which...
1: I have one here <laughs> <Do you>? <laughs> <laughs> on a 2030,
0: um, Yes, and the comparison between that and the sidecar uh, doesn't really stand comparison. No. Um, now there's a lot of talk, Peter, about tractors and the weight, and are they getting too heavy uh, and 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 too powerful?
1: Uh, what's your view on that? Um, well, I, I, I would agree. Um, they are extremely heavy and powerful and all the rest of it. And they've, they've, uh, probably exceeded the, you know, the, the sensible weight and power for a, a tractor, especially when you look at the, the actual weight on the field, even with big tires sometimes, and, and probably more importantly, the maneuverability. I mean, we live out in the country in Lincolnshire and even in Lincolnshire, we've got some fairly narrow roads, but you meet a 200 horsepower tractor coming down the road and it fills it up pretty well. Um, so yeah, they, they, they are too big really. But, uh, but of course the reason they're so big is because of the, the man required on the seat and the, the scarcity of those men, the price of those men and, and so on. And so while we, we still need that person on the seat, I don't think they're going to get smaller. They might even get bigger. Yeah.
0: Now, all the talk, of course, is in the uh, throughout the automotive business is about power sources for vehicles. And but if we look at tractors in particular, uh, what do you think will be the next major technological train change as far as power sources are concerned?
1: Yeah, uh, very interesting. Um, I mean, I'm I'm out of this completely. Haven't been retired a few years, but I studied the same, same <laughs> as everybody else. Yeah. Say what I like. Of course I can. Um, but you know, my, my view of from a, a layman's point of view is that I think, uh, electricity is not the long-term solution. Not, not even for cars. I don't think, you know, you, mm-hmm. you have to think about all the the rare earths and the the, the minerals that have been mined to create these batteries. Um, the, the cost of manufacturing the batteries and the cars themselves, electric cars is, uh, it's pretty high. And of course, you've then got the, the eventual recycling concerns for all these batteries and, and, and things as well. So I, I don't think that's really a, a long term solution. Um, and of course, for tractors, the, the power density of those batteries is still not really enough to do real work for a, a, a long day or even a part of a day. No. So, so I, I don't see that. What, what I do see Um, And although I'm not a scientist, I don't really understand it. But, you know, in my view, hydrogen is is the best and the cleanest long-term solution. You know, uh, but I think from what I've read, I think it'll come in trucks and tractors and heavy vehicles first uh, before we see it on on the road on cars. Um, And I say, I'm not a scientist, so I'm allowed to dream a bit. But uh, in a utopian situation, what you could imagine is that you put water in the tank, which is H2O. You produce H to uh, power the motor, and you finish up with oxygen and water vapor coming out the back. Yeah, uh, that's that would a be the perfect degree, solution, <laughs> wouldn't it? I, I'm sure it's a bit more complicated than that. Uh, and of course, there's going, there is already a, a growing shortage of water on the planet. So, yeah, so uh, that's may not, maybe not utopia. So, I don't know, Chris, but yeah. uh, I, I don't see electricity long term.
0: Uh, and of course, the other. Buzz subject and the one which tends to uh, make the, the the press prick up their ears particularly the non-specialist press, press um, is or are robot robot tractors and robot machinery um, how far do you think we've come in that and how near are we to seeing them in in uh, practical application
1: um, well um, again I'm a long way removed from all that sort of stuff in uh, development but Um, All I would say is that it's definitely coming. It will come at some point for sure. Um, And then those big tractors will get an awful lot smaller and there'll be many more of them, I'm sure of that too. But I would think the next step, and this was already sort of in process before I left Deere eight years ago, is is things like the leader-follower principle where you have uh, one operator on one machine, one tractor, let's say, um, and he's got three or five units in the field, and he's controlling all of them from from one machine um, you know that adds some some safety then. so I think it'll be some time before we see full autonomy of machines trundling up and down a field completely unaided if you if you like more
0: as regards existing. As, as they stand at the moment, there, there's, is there a gap sometimes between manufacturers' technological advancements and the, the, the customer's acceptance of, of new technology?
1: Um, no, that's a good one. Um, well, what I would say is that customers have, have, have really changed considerably over the years. Um, and are now much more technology savvy and looking for the next step and adopting the new technologies and in automation and all these things. So I, I I don't think it's the issue that probably it was some some time ago. If you if you go back to the, the more traditional sort of farmers that we see very few of these days, certainly up here in Lincolnshire, it, it was hard for some of them to understand new technologies and to accept that they were actually necessary and an example i can think of in my career was electronics you know more and more electronics came into the tractor the three-point hitch was operated by electrical electronic devices and things like that. and a lot of farmers didn't like that they'd rather have a rod and some levers operating a valve and and all that kind of things but you know today nobody would uh would argue that electronics have have provided considerable benefits in in so many areas so yeah, I'd say customers. No, customers today are, are pretty well up for it. Yes, yeah.
0: I, I seem to recall my father saying that he thought the um, end of civilization had come when they he bought his first car that didn't have a starting handle,
1: but
0: uh, <laughs> there you go. So, look, yeah. let, let's move from tractors to, to training, for which you were responsible in a great degree at the DEER. So when when DEER were putting together the early training for resources uh, at Langer, uh, were they built around a US model or were they adapted for use in the UK or or specific and bespoke?
1: Um, Well, the the answer is specific and bespoke. Um, How training used to happen, and I say used to because it's different today, um, is that when whichever factory was producing or about to produce a new model or a new variant or a new, a new product of some sort, then the, the, uh, the technical staff from the different countries would be invited to uh, an internal training on those products. And that could be where you had your wow moment sometime. That would be the first time you saw it. And, and then we would come back to, to our country, uh, back to the UK, and we would develop training from the material they provided us with, and we'd ask for more if we needed it. Um, and we developed training that we thought was appropriate for what our dealers in the UK wanted to, to, to learn and the way they wanted to learn it. So it was very much a one-shot, one and then uh, different countries developed it in different ways. Have the resources and, and methods changed much over the years? Oh yes, they've they've changed changed a lot actually, uh, uh, both internally and technologically. Um, one of the big things I remember, because it was a revelation really, is when we when we started moving to computers and particularly with uh, Windows PowerPoint. I mean, if you're if you're doing training, you you always need you know visual aids, and we used to use overhead projectors and acetates and all that sort of stuff. Oh, bless and, them! Yes, exactly, and then thirty-five millimeter slides, which the factories used to make. But as soon as we got PowerPoint, and even later when we got digital cameras and things, you could make whatever you wanted in seconds, and it was just amazing. Um, and then, of course, later on with the internet and video conferencing, that sort of thing that made a big difference as well. You know, I mean, we, we we use Zoom a lot. Everybody uses Zoom with their granny these days, but in the early days, it was a much more of a business tool. That was used for training very very early on. In fact. In the United States, um, where the distance between a dealer and his nearest training centre could be a thousand miles, then distance learning, as they call it, became, uh, you know, really, really important as soon as it was available with internet. Uh, as long ago as uh, 2004, they started in the US with that, I think. Yeah. Um, and the same thing, distance learning classes, as they're called, we introduced those across Europe about ten years ago. So that's one um another big change was uh, within DEA um is where we changed to centralized training material development. So yes. as I said before the factory would produce the material we'd all go off to our different countries produce what we thought our dealers needed. And of course that's a rather a heavy duplication of effort when you've got multiple training centers and and languages around the world. So now that is produced centrally, not with the factory, but with a a proper training development organization, and it avoids um, a a lot of, uh, well, multiple people doing the same task. And uh, then we do uh, multiple... translations at the same time and there are nine official languages i think deer uses
0: yeah gosh yeah
1: so that was that, i think there's a cost saving as well as uh, making sure we maintain the same standard and all that kind of stuff
0: uh, of course, those of us of a certain vintage we, we tend to forget that the internet only came into common use and I think around about nineteen eighty seven eighty eight uh, yeah. fairly recent and uh, uh, that obviously has fed into a lot of the training resources now, Peter, you will have had a lot of trainees uh, come through the doors um, at at deer so a really simple question what what makes a good trainee and, and ultimately, uh, presumably, translates into a good technician?
1: Yeah. Um, yes, indeed. Um, uh, a subject very clear to my heart, as, as you well know, because uh, um, I did all of the work placement student hiring and uh, much of the graduate trainee hiring at, at dea for about 25 years. So um, a lot of people, as I said right at the beginning, who are in the industry or still with deer or whatever, basically I, I got them started at John Deere at some point in their career. So yes, uh and there's a lot of things I used to look for, and it was it was pretty simple stuff really. Um and I think uh, if you're looking to hire technical people um or or they don't have to be technical people but people who are going to work with farmers and people in this industry, then there are some basic skills. So what I was always looking for was a practical background—it didn't have to be farming, uh, but farming is very practical. But a rural background is is useful to understand, you know, what uh, what what crops and things are about and so on. But really, a practical background is very very important because uh, if you're practical, you're, you your your brain is usually wired up to work with common sense and logic and problem solving, mm-hmm. um, which is what we're really looking for. It's just someone who's able to go out and solve problems using their own initiative, really. So that's the key one. Um, communication skills, of course, as I also said earlier on, being able to explain the how and the why and all the rest of it. I mean, I used to have a, I wouldn't call it a trick, but a, a favorite question I used to roll out in, in most interviews or many interviews, and I would, uh, I would give the interviewee a, a, a standard ordinary pencil and, uh, and ask them to explain it to me without much other information. And they'd often look a bit set back and, oh, think a minute, which is fine. But some would say something like, um, "Well, this is a piece of wood. It's got lead down the middle of it, etc., cetera, etc," cetera. where others might say something like, "Well, this is a means of communication. Um, it requires paper to make it work, and a common language between two people that understand the same language, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And a bit of of all-
0: lateral thinking
1: exactly and it's that that uh, second type of answer was the one i was looking for obviously so uh, uh one last point i think is important here which is is not a uh, uh one of the skill sets i was looking for but but uh we were always looking you know we were always short of ladies in our industry um and i think we're getting more of them now but we were very male centric organization and if there was ever a female applied for a job who had the uh, the right kind of qualifications we would always interview them um regardless um and if they're any good at all we would always hire them so we we did bring a few girls into the system um and some of them went on and did great things and uh, and the more the better in my view indeed now, you've mentioned the word communication uh several times during our
0: conversation here how important are they for for a technician
1: Oh, oh, much more important than a lot of technicians actually realize Hmm. Um, because a technician in a dealership is the one person that the customer will really believe unequivocally. Uh, Whatever he says, um, you know, he'll take it as gospel. So it's therefore very important that those technicians have good communication skills and can explain themselves and explain the how and the why I referred to earlier, um, but also to understand how important what they say is and how a customer will believe and remember what they say almost above anybody else you know we all know the saying that sales sell the first product to a customer but the subsequent sales rely on the technician um and what they what they say to a customer and it's absolutely right um, they do they have huge influence um and they don't realize it so uh, as I said, many of them don't really realize that or accept that they have this power of influence. Uh, and in many cases, neither do neither, neither do their employees, employers, sorry, uh, you know, their, yeah. their bosses, and they, and they probably should. Uh, and on that point, do, do the technicians
0: uh, appreciate as much as they should Peter, um, the, the business management matters, how their business, is, why the business is in business, um, and, uh, generally business management, um, acumen, uh, they don't have to know it all, but is it good to have an awareness uh, of
1: what the business is all about? Uh, oh yes, definitely. I, I think it is. And I think a lot of dealers and a lot of businesses are, are much better at communicating that kind of stuff to their technicians and their workforce. But at, at that level, it, it's, it's not critical, but it but it's good for a technician to understand, that, as I said, the influence he has on the customer's operation, you know, not only um, with fixing this up, but financially, you know, what's it costing to have this kit standing for an hour or two more hours or whatever it is, and and the value of what he, he says, you know, especially as sort of like upselling opportunities may occur while he's there, and he can... Uh, he can help his, his business by selling some uh, additional parts or oils or something. Indeed, and those that really have the ambition to
0: to to go right up the ladder, again, how uh, how important is it that they should have practical skills? I know this came up in my uh, conversation with Graham Thompson, and who, uh, you know. It, it, Extraordinarily, started as a as a technician on a yeah, farm in Hampshire, yeah. uh, and rose to the the very top of the tree within John Deere, and yeah. and I know I do remember him saying uh, that much of that that he achieved
1: in Deere was down to his practical experience. Uh, how, how important do you think that is? I listened to him saying that, and I was very proud to hear him say it because uh, yes, we're fully aligned, and I'm sure I told him that many times. <laughs> but uh, yes, uh, you know, it's absolutely true. It's critical you know, land-based customers, farmers, and grounds care customers, whatever, they're all practical people doing, you know, complex jobs with complex machines and technology. So it's really important that people who are high up in our industry understand that and understand how to communicate with those customers on a practical level and uh, able to explain things within a, within the, the company from a practical customer-orientated point of view. So... Yeah, common sense, logic, practical application, is what we what is we needed at all levels really?
0: Peter, I, I've actually sat through uh, quite a number of your PowerPoint presentations or whatever uh, <laughs> technology you were using at the time, in which and I will use the word preached um, about right? the differential okay. between the costs charged by uh, for the service of uh, and repair of tractors and farm machinery with those charged by say a Land Rover dealer or someone in that of that ilk. Um, has that message
1: got home to the industry in general and and dealers in particular? Uh, well, you, you you are right. I used to harp on this subject quite a lot because we're always trying to make our dealers more profitable. And of course, if they if they're providing a high level of service, then they should be charging for it. and uh, And I think they do a, a, a lot more today. Um, but I think they've only they've only partially got there. Um, I think they still charge less per hour than a, you know, a high-level Jaguar Land Rover dealer would, uh, and, and it has increased a lot, but probably not enough. But I think you know, and I've I've heard other people say this on your program, on your podcast before, that if you compare the technician in, in our industry, be it, be it ground care or ag, doesn't matter. These guys are usually out there on the customer's place. They're working alone, so they haven't got a service manager or a or a master technician to come and help them if they've got a bit of a head-scratching situation. They're trying to make diagnostic decisions and repairs all at the same time. They're advising customers on field adjustments and crop flows and all this kind of stuff. And all at the same time, they've got the customer breathing down the neck. They're trying (laughs) to manage that situation and all the rest of it. Now, you compare that to this automotive technician um, in the Land Rover dealership, who's behind a glass screen, isolated from the customer, so the customer can't influence him or even meet him. Um, He's got all his colleagues around him, and he's got the internet at his fingertips because he's in a nice, clean, tidy workshop. Um, And he's probably only changing oil anyway. There's a huge difference in in the environment and and the skill set required.
0: Uh, now, I know that you've been out of um, deer for, for a little while now, um, and uh, but do you think that the training methods that uh, have had to be used, particularly over the last 12 months
1: uh, during lockdown, will become long term? Oh, definitely. No question about that. I think work in general has changed and and, and will never change back completely. Mm, I take my son as an example. He's, he's, he's not in our industry, but he, he was a working nine to five in a, in a, in a very good job down in London in in the office every day. And, and through lockdown, he's been up here in Lincolnshire with us most of the time. And, and the, the job has continued exactly the same. And the, the bosses are now saying, well, when, when we do get back to normal, Um, I might come in the office one or two days a week, and I don't expect you guys to do any more. We'll work from home. We'll meet when we need to and so on. And so I think, you know, I think work in general for all of us, Mm -hmm. those who are working, I have to say, being a retiree, but will will never be the same as it was. But going back to training methods that have been employed, well, I think within our industry, I think most uh, organizations were already using what I call distance learning, the same as Deer has been doing for almost 20 years. Um, and I'm sure that that has increased considerably over the, the last year or so because they couldn't do any face-to-face training. So everything will have gone online mm. and the dealers are used to it. The dealers have training rooms to receive that sort of training and, and all that sort of thing. So that, that has increased a lot and I'm sure it will continue. But it will be nice for them, I'm sure, to be able to get back to face-to-face training because there are, a number of such especially on the technical side, where you do need the practical element of having the machines there and taking things apart and actually seeing it, as well as looking at pictures on the internet about it. So uh, yeah, yeah, there's been a lot of change. I don't think it'll ever change back. But we will get back to -to face-to-face training, I'm sure.
0: Again, we talked a lot about communication and and, and language. Um, And language is changing. Uh, We've all got to be much more careful with what we say these days and the way we say it. Do you think that the language of this uh, industry has changed enough? I'm thinking particularly of of that word that makes us all shudder, uh, fitter, uh, versus the word technician, of course.
1: Well, I don't know, Chris, but as you know, this is yet another one of my pet subjects. Uh, I've always hated the words fitter or even mechanic. I don't like mm-hmm. that either uh, when we're using them to describe a, a highly skilled and trained diagnostic t- 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 technician working in today's world. Y- you know, use of the term like I'll send a fitter. You know, immediately tells a customer, well, I'm going to send you someone who you don't need to have any respect for. You'll come and fit some parts and all this. And uh, it will uh, calibrate the customer's view into how much you should be paying for that. Whereas uh, a similar response, like saying, I'm going to send one of our diagnostic ten- technicians, that conveys a rather different scenario, especially as to you know what's going to happen and how much you may have to pay for that service customers only refer to them as fitters if somebody else refers to them as fitters so uh, the more we stop using those words the the better but i think there has been a lot of improvement because there's been a lot of people preaching not not just me but um, a lot of a lot of others and a lot of all the programs that have come out but it, it will be slow to change and some things never change i mean another one that always makes me laugh but is is nearly as as bad is is we always not we People in general are always talking about the stores within the dealership. They have the stores. You need to be in the stores. Well, it's really a parts department. You know, Do they want to store parts or do they want to sell parts? And uh, I, that's always been a, a key one for me as well. And as the
0: industry has gone through considerable evolution, technological and also in business, how successfully do you think dealers have responded to all the changes over
1: the past few years? That's, uh, that's another good question, Chris. <laughs> I would say I think those dealers who have responded to the changes have done it very successfully. You know, they've, uh, they've adapted, adopted, and changed, and in most cases have grown because that's the way the industry's gone is its growth and uh, much larger businesses than, than used to be the case. I think many have taken advice and direction from their main suppliers and seen where others are going and embraced it and become very successful.
0: Uh, Yes, indeed. And I think we've seen lots of examples of that, uh, I'm sure. And of course, one of their problems is how do they attract the best talent that's available? How do you think, uh, often say that this industry flies under the radar of public recognition to a a great degree, uh, and it's still a niche industry. So how should the industry, do you think,
1: uh, best portray itself to outsiders? Uh, well, I think it's, it's easy to say how they should portray it, but it's a matter of, you know, the, uh, the where and the why. That's the, that's the really difficult one, getting, getting the, the word out to the, the broader cohort of employees that might want to work here. But, I mean, it, it is a, a very vibrant and highly technical industry. It's an exciting place to work. You know, what, what can be more important than helping to feed the world? But uh, how we really get that out wider um, without going on TV advertising or something, I, I really don't know. In-
0: indeed. But if you were stood up in front of a, an audience, youngsters selling the industry, uh, if you like, how would you sum up a life in agricultural engineering or its related uh, uh, areas?
1: Uh, well, I, I, I would, and I, I have several times said, you know, it's, it's, it's been a, a very enjoyable experience. Um, in many ways, and, and very satisfying and very varied. Um, a lot of really interesting things I've done during my my career. You know, and as again, as I've mentioned before, I, I take great pride in all the people that I've hired and, and helped develop and who are now climbing the ladder to very important positions, some of them like Graham that you've mentioned, but uh, many others we won't necessarily mention, um, you know, throughout the industry and beyond. But but also uh, I take great pride in some of the things that I put in place during my time, which have been successful, you know, made a difference, and and continue um, such things as the the ag tech and turf tech apprentice programs, which we we kicked off in mm-hmm. 1992 and have gone from strength to strength. And I think I, I did see a figure in a press release recently. I think over 800 um, apprentice technicians have been through those programs now. So. You know, there's a you can get a a a lot of pride from uh,
0: a lot of buzz out of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, look, uh, Peter, I've really enjoyed our, our very wide ranging trawl through, through the industry and in, in many of its aspects. And many, many words have repeated themselves, the how and the why and communication and so yeah, on, yeah. but um, it, not necessarily hung up above your desk. But are there any mottos or sayings that you use as a guide uh, when you,
1: you, you kind of want to think about how you should uh, approach things? Um, probably not a strict motto as such other than, uh, you know, like can do, we always talk about a can do industry. That's, that's a, a term I've used many times and things. Um, but I also like quotes, especially when I'm um, doing presentations. And if you've seen some of my presentations, you may, you may have seen one or other of these, because there's a, a couple I can think of here that, um, that I have used many times. And um, one is very apt for, um, service and product support and it's from uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt and he said uh, people who don't care how much you know until they know how much you care I so just do that that's, again yeah people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care so uh, and I think that's very true we have lots of verbose people telling us how clever they are but uh, we're not very interested unless we know they're trying to help us. And another one, which uh, which again is dear to my heart, which is about career development, and is from a chap called Thomas Huxley, and that is, uh, and it's it's very old old word, so I will read it. It says, uh, the rung of a ladder was never meant to rest upon, but only to hold a person's foot long enough to enable them to put the other one somewhat higher. <laughs> and, that's yes. right. and that's a ladder, and we often talk about the ladder of a career and so on. But yes, to put it somewhat higher, that's what we're all trying to achieve. Well that
0: that's very apt and uh, thank you for that. Look, Peter, I've really, as I say, enjoyed our, our chat uh, today. It's uh, uh, you have a very wide experience or have had a very wide experience and are still um, very much involved uh, in this in the industry. So could I really thank you very
1: much indeed for your time today and and, and, and you go with all my best wishes. Thank you, Chris. Thank you very much. And uh, good luck with your next season of podcasts.
0: Thank you very much, Peter.
1: Well, if there ever was a masterclass in
0: bringing out the best in people and realising their potential, well, you've probably just heard it. Peter highlighted so many nuggets of common sense management that are obvious when you hear them, but which we often forget or overlook. As I've mentioned, after 30 episodes, Inside Agriturf is now taking a break for a few weeks in order to plan the Season 2, so might I thank you all for your support and kind comments throughout the series. I'm Chris Biddle, thank you for joining me, and this is Inside Agriturf.